And so I think that the strength of, of both of them and the Democratic Party is this idea that, you know, you can learn, you can grow, you can make mistakes and come back wiser and stronger and learn from them. Hey, welcome to Crosscut Talks. I'm Mark Baumgarten, the managing editor at Crosscut. And this week I'm speaking with Ruchika Tolshien. Ruchika is the founder and CEO of Candor, a global inclusion strategy firm. And she's a journalist whose byline has appeared in Harvard Business Review and Forbes. She's also the author of The Diversity Advantage, Fixing Gender Inequality in the Workplace. And she's currently writing a follow-up to that book that focuses on the experience of women of color at work. Of course, one of the workplaces that has seen the deepest inequality for its entire history is the White House. But that is beginning to change with the election of Kamala Harris to the vice presidency. Harris will be carrying a lot of firsts into the White House. She's the first woman vice president, not to mention the first woman of color to hold the office. She is the first black person to be vice president, and she is the first Asian American to achieve this height of elected office. It's going to be a very different experience from the last four years, a sign that our country is changing and really a recognition that it has already changed. I wanted to talk to Ruchika about that, what it means for the country, for Harris, and for her. Ruchika, welcome to Crosscut Talks. Mark, thank you for having me. And while you were making that announcement, I had goosebumps. Oh, well, um, I'm sure it wasn't uh, my recitation. It was probably the content, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, the content is pretty amazing. So let's start. I'm wondering if you could tell me about the first time you became aware of the now vice president-elect. Walk me through your experience of getting to know her as a public figure and how you regard her in your life in the run-up to this election. So I'll actually be honest that I first heard about Kamala Harris and the reason I think I got really interested in her is because of her name. So I have a name which is unusual and pretty hard to pronounce for most Americans. And it was around the time where President Obama made a gaffe back when presidential gaffes were pretty innocuous, where he called her something along the lines of the best looking attorney general. Cringy, mm -hmm. but certainly not what we have seen after, after you know he left the office. But that was around the first time that I really thought to myself, I was like, really, the attorney general of California's name is Kamala? You know, that's a name sort of I grew up hearing. Hmm. It's an Indian name. I am off Indian origin. And, you know, I knew a few Kamalas growing up. So for me, I was like, really? Is like, how is that possible? And I started looking into it and I started realizing, wow, she's this, you know, she's a black woman. She's an Indian woman. So that was sort of my first foray into really recognizing who she was as, you know, it became clear that Joe Biden, you know, said that he would choose a woman uh, and, and a woman of color at that time, you know, Kamala Harris's name was being, you know, sort of bandied about. So was Stacey Abrams, whom, you know, I'm also a huge fan of. Mm -hmm. So I really started getting very excited, you know, at the prospect that whoever this person is going to be, it's going to be a huge 
change from what we've seen to date. And so the day that, you know, Joe Biden made the announcement, you know, and I've been following not only Kamala Harris on Twitter, I love Twitter, uh, but also, you know, Mina and Maya Harris and other people, um, you know, who just, it just felt like a huge celebration, just hearing her name announced, just looking at those sort of early videos of her accepting it, you know, it was, it really, it did give me the chills. Hmm. So now let's fast forward to after the election when the major news organizations called the race for Biden and Harris. What were you doing that Saturday morning? What was your experience with the the news that that Harris would would be entering the the White House? I mean, I had the champagne ready. Oh, really? (laughs) Not only did I have the champagne ready, but I had specifically ordered champagne from McBride Sisters, which is a large Black-owned, women-owned winery out in California. Mm. And I was just so sure she would win. You know, I was so sure they would win. In the same way, sadly, in 2016, I was very, very sure uh, that the Trump administration would be coming in. And um, I think for me, not only did the did the moment feel really historic, I mean, I have a four-year-old, I have a brown son, um, I myself identify as a brown woman of color. It just, it really felt like, wow, you know, there is hope for this country. I'm an immigrant to it. There is hope for this country. There is hope for our workplaces because for so many of the last few years, it has really felt like a hopeless situation. Hmm. You know, you mentioned 2016, and I, I've been—I mean, I've, I've been thinking. Well, I've just been thinking a lot about presidential politics and trying to to take our experiences of the past and apply them to this current moment to try to understand how far our politics have come, um, how they're changing. You know, one thing about 2016 is that many Americans thought that we were about to see our first woman president and were, were quite gutted when that did not happen. And so now we're in a place where we're seeing uh, a woman vice president, but it's also a woman of color. And I wanted to ask you, how is that different? What does it mean for the first woman to be a vice president or president to also be a woman of color? Yeah, I think it makes a monumental difference. The fact that it's a woman of color, because research is very clear. My own lived experiences back this up. Um, I'm working on this book around, you know, on the experience of women of color really globally in the workplace. What does having intersectional identities of race and gender Mm. or ethnicity and gender or religion and gender, how does that play into your experience in the workplace? And largely the answer is much more negatively than if you, you know, were a white woman or a dominant group woman in another country. So the fact that she's a woman of color is monumentally different. It is extremely significant in a way that having a white woman Uh, vice president or a white woman president, as in 2016, many of us did uh, anticipate, it is very different. Because if, you know, I I think if there's anything that uh, the movement for racial justice this year specifically taught us, it's the reality that racism is the biggest issue in our workplaces today. It is the most pressing issue of our time. And so if we 
are really to make change, if we're really to see the kinds of movement and progress that so many of us are pushing for in the field, it really does require an intersectional lens. And Kamala Harris, while far from perfect, really does provide that. And, and she has you know, other intersecting identities. She, she's a child of two different immigrants, right? Immigrants from two different countries with two different experiences in this country. So the perspectives that she is going to bring in and that she carries will absolutely inform so much of the way and the empathy, the understanding, the viewpoints that we really need to push for progress in this country. Okay, so I was uh, I was on your LinkedIn earlier today, and um, you posted a photo that was pictures of all the vice presidents who came before, who are all white men, and then Kamala Harris, and um, you know, and a short note with it, celebrating it. I think that you you also wrote that if you look around your workplaces, you will either see a woman like Kamala, who was the first, or you will find a gaping hole where Madam VP should be. And you received a lot of comments, so many of them supportive, but there were a few critics. And I thought there was one exchange that was interesting. One commenter stated that he felt it was inappropriate for Harris to trumpet her gender and race. You know, this isn't a unique critique. I think that we've seen this before, but that her centering gender and race uh, in her ascension to the ticket was inappropriate, that she should be judged by the merits that I imagine he credits for earning all of those other vice presidents their roles. Can you tell me and the listeners how you responded to that critique? Well, I will start by saying that I actually deleted or reported abuse on some of them. So the majority of what you see there is actually a very sanitized version. <laughs> and I did spend the first few days uh, after making that post, which I did not expect to be controversial at all, really deleting and reporting and uh, just wondering, you know, mm. what did I say that was so controversial there's data to back this up. I mean, you know, even if you look in American workforces, white women make 19% of leaders in the C-suite in corporate America. Women of color make up 4%. So it's not controversial, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. But I did decide to keep this one up and I did decide to engage. And part of it is because I think the myth of meritocracy really rings strong. It's pervasive around this country, mm. around the world, really. I grew up in Singapore, where it is also very pervasive. And the reality is that, you know, we do not make decisions based on a person's accomplishments. If we did, Hillary Clinton would have been our last president, right? Mm. Um, we really, really take for granted the way so many people make decisions every decision based on race and gender. I mean, let's not forget 71 million Americans voted for Donald Trump. So that decision was very much motivated by race and gender as well. So I think it's important to examine why that discomfort comes about. I think meritocracy is one of those ideals that we casually sort of throw around because it helps us feel better about the fact that others aren't progressing. It allows us to adopt a sort of, you know, ignorance is bliss attitude towards the fact that, again, systemic racism and systemic sexism has really, you know, come up as a barrier for so many women and especially women of color in this country. 
So while I really, I would love to live in a world where we truly could, you know, go beyond someone's race and gender, but for us to really get there, we have to see the representation. So, you know, when I was, when I was sort of engaging with this commenter, whom, by the way, I have no idea who, who they are. Mm. Um, but when I was engaging with them, what I really wanted to drive home was this idea, you know, either you're telling me that, you know, race and gender don't matter. And that th just for 208 years, there was not a single woman or woman of color who was qualified enough to become a vice president, right? Or you're telling me that men and white men are inherently better, right? Mm -hmm. And will always mm -hmm. sort of be at the top, right? Because they inherently have something that's, you know, great about every single one of them. And I think that's where the argument starts to break down when you start to investigate that. I would love for more listeners to understand the level of abuse mm. and the level of harassment that women and especially women of color candidates have to really brace themselves for. You know, what I experienced was a tiny little glimpse into it. Neither am I running for public office. Neither did I say anything extremely controversial. Neither am I making decisions on how to run a country or a state or city council. But at every level, when I have heard directly from women and especially women of color who want to run for things like school board, for things that, you know, for, for things like, you know, the city council of a small suburb, the level of abuse is just, it's unimaginable. It really is. I've been thinking a lot about the presidency of Barack Obama and how his election as the first black man to sit at the Resolute desk seemed singular, this individual who was achieving this, who was making history. And Harris, on the other hand, feels like she is a part of a wave. We're seeing record numbers of women of color in Congress. And those women of color in Congress are forming the nucleus of what seems to be the future leadership of Democrats in the House. And then here in Washington state, even, we are seeing record numbers of black women elected to the state legislature. What does it mean that Harris's win is a part of a wave and not a seemingly isolated occurrence? Are you, have you been thinking about this at all? I did immigrate here the year that Barack Obama, you know, was elected to second term back in 2012. And so for me, definitely, like like millions of Americans, I think a lot of white Americans, a lot of non-Black people of color, Americans and immigrants, you know, I started getting really comfortable. You know, I started thinking, well, yes, there might be, you know, day-to-day, -day, you know, racism and aggressions and challenges. But hey, look, you know, look, there's there's a black family in the White House, you know, and if it can happen here, it can happen anywhere else in the world. So when I, you know, when I saw Barack Obama's election, I, like many Americans and immigrants who are non-black, I want to say specifically, really did celebrate that in a way thinking that, you know, maybe we're closer to a post-racial country. Now, that was a huge mistake, as 2016 taught us. I think a lot of us walked away from the 2016 elections extremely chastised, extremely sobered, you know. But I, but I want to say that this new wave of women and women of color coming into these positions of power 
is extremely important because you do need that support system. You do need a tribe. This is not a story about one singular exceptional person. In many ways, Barack Obama was exceptional, but it is really about creating a system of power and change within that system of power so that many more people can be represented, right? And so the day when Kamala Harris finally does take that office in January, it's not seen as sort of a singular, again, that one person was able to sort of break the the concrete ceiling, as it's called for, for women of color, but yeah. really that it's it's part of a larger you know, system of change that people in workplaces, women of color in workplaces around the country can seek those positions of power and success. So I actually think that this is very much the direction that this country needed to go. You know, we do need representation at every level. It's not just one special person, which unfortunately is the narrative that really surrounded the Obama presidency. So looking back on the Obama presidency, what can that presidency teach us about what to expect with having Harris in the White House as a VP and you know what the next four years are going to look like? Yeah, I think the number one thing is that we cannot rest on our laurels, you know, and I think many of us did that. I think this is the time for progressive white people, for non-Black people of color to really step up against racism and really Mm. practice anti-racism in a very, very intentional way. Mm. And we really just need to keep enabling and empowering more and more women and especially women of color to continue running for office and supporting them, whether it's financially, whether it's engaging people to run, whether it's campaigning, whether it's understanding what issues are at stake. I mean, we, I think, um, have really been in some ways uh, reminded that democracy, you know, is not a given. It is an active process. It requires active participation you know, yes, let's celebrate. And a lot of my sentiment, you know, on that day where it was announced, I was like, yes, let's celebrate today. And tomorrow we got to get back to work. You're saying that that people who are really pushing for affirmative change in our politics need to not rest on their laurels. It also makes me think about um, one of the criticisms of the Obama administration. And, And one of those was that President Obama was sometimes reluctant to call attention to his race. What role do you think race and gender will play in how Harris leads and how she holds the office of the vice presidency? You know, what makes me sad and what makes me nervous is the reality that for far too many people of color, so Barack Obama is a good example of this, we are sort of inherently innately coached, right? Or in Mm. some ways oppressed enough to understand that the only way we can ascend to those highest powers or highest offices are really going to be from playing nice and towing the line and not saying the words race and racism. If you want to have your place, you know, in society, you want to, you, you are ambitious. You kind of need to play that down and you need to toe the line. And, you know, and and in some ways that is, in my opinion, some of the failings of the Obama uh, administration. I think there was a, a real time to have a conversation around race um, and even gender. And I think 
there were a lot of missed opportunities. And I think that actually even in some ways really played well into the opposite side. Hmm. Now, when it comes to Kamala Harris, I think she won't be able to step away from the fact that she is a woman of color. The good news is she's really faced it her whole life. You know, that double bind of uh, sexism and racism, it it's a heavy burden to carry. She herself has talked about it enough just on the campaign trail, even before that. You know, she's not new to the party in any way. My hope is that by centering these experiences of folks who have been the most marginalized, and let's not, I mean, we haven't even gotten to it, but we are in the middle of such a painful pandemic, 250,000 Americans dead, Mm. disproportionately Americans of color, knowing that women have disproportionately been impacted by this pandemic in one month, you know, 865,000 women left the workforce. We know that Black and uh, Latinx uh, communities have disproportionately died as a result of the of the coronavirus. And so I would actually say that this is the best time for her to lean in and lead with those identities. Hmm. I want to finish off with a question. Well, by talking about, I think, the complexity of representation. Vice President-elect Harris is a kind of avatar of the multi-ethnic coalition that the Democratic Party is building its politics on. You know, she is the daughter of immigrants from Jamaica and India. But we're seeing some limitations around a politics built around that coalition. You know, some Asian and Latinx voters, uh, for instance, are being credited with defeating affirmative action measures at the state level. We've seen President Trump won Florida in part by appealing to to Cuban voters. Do you think that it's an antiquated way to look at the electorate and to really shape your politics? And where do the Democrats go from here? Um, you know, that's that's a great question. And I think one of the concerns and one of the failings really of even the media in the way that um, the election results are being reported is, you know, a lot of Cuban Americans do not have the same sort of experiences, for example, Mexican Americans. So calling them the sort of Latino voter uh, is an overly simplistic sort of definition and categorization, even within the Asian American community. Um, you know, there there are some very stark divisions, very much by, you know, by a lot of nuance of, you know, what was your immigration journey into this country? Mm-hmm. You know, how much was you identifying as white or proximity to whiteness? How much was that, you know, shown to you as your way to succeed in this country? And so I think that there's a lot of nuance there. Um, you know, without sort of being able to consider what are the unique issues that different communities are dealing with, I, I do think it is harder to be a party for everyone than the way that the opposition has really structured themselves as mm. in many ways a very, very white supremacist party. And, and I know this sounds, you know, maybe it sounds extreme to some listeners, I certainly would not have used this terminology four years ago, but it, you cannot deny that it's it's sort of a race to the bottom once you start talking about xenophobia and racism and sexism and all of that. And, and those are sort of the easy things to lean on. 
I think the Democratic Party is going to have a difficult time. There is no doubt about this. And even in this election, I mean, I think one of the big things that played in their favor was the pandemic. You know, without the pandemic, I shudder to think what would have actually happened um, on election day. I think if I was to to sort of, you know, think about how the Democratic Party is going to turn around from here, I think it is messages of healing. I think it is messages of unity. I think Joe Biden has done a good job in, in doing that, as well as Kamala Harris. I think there's also a lot of room, and I think this is where the strength of, again, both candidates, you know, of both uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris is demonstrating a growth mindset. Joe Biden was asked some tough questions. I think of the Anita Hill hearings. You don't have a great track record when it comes to, you know, victims and um, survivors of, of sexual abuse and assault. Uh, Kamala Harris certainly has been very tough on crime at various different times and, you know, even co-opted racist policies and policing. And so I think that the strength of, of both of them and the Democratic Party is this idea that, you know, you can learn, you can grow, you can make mistakes and come back wiser and stronger and learn from them. And I think that really does put at least these two leaders in a very good position to lead. I would really say for the Democratic Party, that needs to be front and center. This idea of, you know, we may not have included you in the past. We may have still, we may have not understood some of the unique issues that various communities are dealing with, but we're here to listen and learn. And I think that is the strength. The other thing on the side of the Democratic Party is the demographics of this country are changing rapidly. And by some measures in the next two decades, we're going to be a minority majority country where white people will be the minority of this country. So I think we really need to sort of think about what is the future going to look like? What are the messages? What are the ideologies that would resonate with Americans of tomorrow, not just the ones of past? Okay, I've got one more bonus question I want to ask you because I want to get I want to get away from complexity for a second. <laughs> and I just want to know what is your plan for inauguration day? Do you have another bottle of champagne at the ready? <laughs> that is a great question. I think there will definitely be champagne on in- inauguration day. I think what really makes me excited is being able to stand, you know, in front of the TV with a brown skin, you know, four-year-old and say, this is your country. Like, let's celebrate this. He's actually, you know, he's the first blood relative I have who is American. He was born Mm. in this country. And I love the fact that we get to do that together and celebrate. So I think there'll be champagne for me, for mom, and then there will be cupcakes for the little one. All right. That's Ruchika Tulshian. Her book is The Diversity Advantage, Fixing Gender Inequality in the Workplace. Ruchika, thanks so much for coming on the show this week. Thank you so much for having me, Mark. Really appreciate it. And that's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to Ruchika for coming on the show this week. The episode was engineered by Resty Bacall and produced by Jake Newman. You can subscribe to Crosscut Talks on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. For more on the Crosscut Talks podcast, go to crosscut.com talks. And if you like the show, please review us. It really helps other people find us. 
For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit CrossCut.com. CrossCut Talks is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Mark Baumgarten. We'll be back next week with another episode.